So glad to be with you this morning. Thank you all for being here. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to lead your minds and things spiritual this morning. Thanks to Mark for his Lord's Supper talk. And for those of the female persuasion in the audience this morning, it is a challenge for the men to come up with things to talk about and not sound like a, a broken record up here, especially in a small group like this where you're getting up quite often. And I appreciate the men for trying to find different things for us to think about as we as we partake of the Lord's Supper uh, every week. Well, this morning, as we I mentioned in our Bible class, I want to continue looking at the church at Ephesus and the letter that was written to them as we go through the book of Revelation in our, our hour before this uh, together and the encouragement that we can gain from that. I want to look at the letter that Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus. And as we mentioned in our Bible class, the church at Ephesus was a church with a great history. Paul had been there for three years working with the Christians in Ephesus. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that there was a great door open to him and effectual, but there were many adversaries. We read about one of those adversaries, Demetrius the coppersmith, or the silversmith, that um, he got a big uh, insurrection uh, raised up against, uh, against Paul, or a, a great mob worked up against Paul. Uh, we know that Paul left Timothy to work there. Paul had been there for three years. There were elders of the church at Ephesus. Timothy was working with the church at Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla had spent some time there. They met Apollos there, who was a great preacher, but was misunderstood on the uh, subject of John the Baptist's baptism. They had a great history. But something had happened between the book of Ephesus that we last hear from them and the book of Revelation. Something had happened and Jesus wrote them a rebuking message. They had let some things slip. They were no longer on fire for the Lord. And he tells them that they need to change. They had wandered away from Jesus and something needed to change. The church at Ephesus isn't alone. And sadly throughout time, churches and people and even we ourselves haven't we wandered away from jesus and the G and jesus's message to the church at ephesus is the same message for us when we wander away and let's look at what that message is together this morning that message is found in revelation chapter 2 verse 5 remember therefore from where you have fallen repent and do the first works or else i will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place Unless you repent. The first thing that Jesus tells the church at Ephesus, and he tells us when we wander away, is we need to remember. Remember from where you have fallen. And that statement that we need to remember from where we're fallen implies that there's an absolute standard, isn't there? There's a standard that we are held accountable to that we need to remember. We need to remember from where we're fallen. In other words, they were right at one time, and they're no longer right now. They were aligned with Jesus at one time, and now they're out of alignment. They were walking according to the truth at one time, and now they're not. There's an absolute standard. That's because there's an absolute right and wrong. Jesus said it very clearly in John 17, verse 17. When he prayed to God, sanctify them by your truth. 
Your word is truth. There is absolute truth. We live in a society today that says there's not absolute truth. Jesus was not ambiguous about that, was he? There is absolute truth. It is God's word. He went on in John chapter 14, verse 6 to say this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says there's an absolute standard. And in the religious world today, though, sadly, there are a lot of misunderstandings about this clear and simple concept that there's an absolute standard, that there is one way, the way. There is one truth, the truth, that God's word is truth. Many in the religious world today will tell us it's too ambiguous. The Bible's sort of ambiguous, it's all sort of fuzzy, it's all gray, that we can't know that they're an absolute truth, that it's impossible to know that. They make this claim that it's ambiguous or too, uh, too unclear, that God didn't state His will clearly. They make that statement in opposition to what the Bible says. In Ephesians chapter 3, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 3, um, verse uh Verse 2, and this one's not on the, on the chart. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, beginning. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Paul said that he wrote his part of the Bible. And every part of the Bible, I would say, is written this way. So that when we read it, we can understand it. It's not too ambiguous. It's not too hard to understand. We can understand it. In fact, we've been commanded to understand it. It's not so complicated that the common man can't understand it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 commands us to be not unwise, but understand the will, what the will of the Lord is. Paul said we can understand it. It's not this big, complicated, fuzzy thing that maybe there is an absolute standard, but you can't understand it. No, we can understand it. We've been commanded to understand it. Others in the religious world today who may not say that it's too ambiguous or too complicated might tell us that it's just sort of relative. That there's a truth for you and there's a truth for me and there's a truth for that guy over there, but they're not the same. It's relative. What is truth to you? Yet the Bible tells us there's an absolute standard, and that absolute standard applies to all. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, or chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 tells us that it's for all, that you can be led away from it. And it's not just a, something for you and it's different for me, and it just depends on who you want to listen to. No, it's for all. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. There's an absolute standard. And it is a standard that we're all applicable to. Truth is truth. And there's not one truth for you and one truth for the guy down the road. No, truth is truth. They were to remember where they were fallen from. That means there's an absolute standard. And finally, as we think about the religious world around us, there's a lot of people today who are saying that our faith is just a journey. That we're on this journey of faith. 
and that what's right for us today may not have been what was right for us just a few years ago. That we're just sort of on this journey. And the longer you get down this journey, boy, it really starts to change even more. And so the things that were wrong in the first century, well, those things aren't necessarily wrong in the 21st century. We've grown. We have a better understanding of things now. Homosexuality might have been wrong in the first century. The Bible might be clear in condemning it in the first century, but things are different now. We're on this journey, and things have changed. That's not what the Scriptures teach. Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write unto you, exhorting to you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered for the saints. We're not on a journey. Truth doesn't just change with the culture and with the times. Truth is absolute. So that Jesus could write to the church at Ephesus and say, remember from where you've fallen. There's a standard. And you're not living up to that standard now. And they needed to remember that. Jesus' statement, though, that they needed to remember from where they're fallen also implies that there's a standard and we're held accountable to that standard. Many would say that we're not accountable. That once you become a Christian, you live any way that you please and God will be happy with that. Yeah, there's a standard, there's an ideal but you just live any way that you want short of that ideal and everything's okay. It doesn't matter how you live. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Now God would like it. God would prefer it. It would be better if you lived at this standard, but eh, it doesn't really matter. That's the ideal, but it doesn't really matter. No. Jesus said, you need to remember from where you're falling, you need to get back there. There's a standard and you're held accountable to it. In Matthew chapter 26, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, beginning of verse 13. Matthew 7, beginning of verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. There is a standard. Remember where you have fallen from. There's a standard. And we're held accountable to that standard. And we need to remember. Remembering is a problem sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we have trouble remembering. In spiritual things, we need to be remembering that standard. You know, something that is a challenge to our memory is when things change gradually. Have you ever pulled up an old picture of someone, maybe someone that you see every day, pull up a picture from a few years ago and compare what you see with that picture and say, wow, he or she is really aged. I didn't realize that, but they really have aged in just a few years. That happened to me the other day, a guy I see all the time in the mirror. I pulled a picture up of me a few years ago. I said, whoa, I didn't realize it's going that fast. But when things change gradually, we don't notice the change. And that happens for us spiritually as well. We can very easily drift away from the truth so gradually that no one recognizes it. And it may be us collectively as a church 
It may be us individually in our personal lives where we slowly drift away. We see it clearly in the denominational world. We can see it in the world around us religiously, how soft preaching on matters of morals has led to an unwillingness to condemn any sin. The acceptance of false teaching in the denominational world has led them gradually to drift farther and farther away from the truth. We may even see it in other churches around us that claim to be churches of Christ, where they've gradually accepted a social gospel that has led them away from the mission of the church. Where they've gradually accepted things like instrumental music, They've gradually become more and more like it, the world around them. What about us? Have we gradually drifted from the church or from the truth? Again, when we're drifting, and drifting very slowly, we don't many times see that. Only when we can get back to that standard of God's word will be pleasing to God. And let me tell you, you can't get back to some place that you don't know where it is. You can't get back to some place unless you know where that place is. Jesus said they needed to remember where they were at one time. Where were you when you were right with me? Get back there. That's different than where they were now. And that might be different than where we are now. We're not just right because we're here sitting in a worship service. We're right because we are living to that standard. We need to remember where we were. Notice what it says about the church at Ephesus. Look at the in chapter 2 of Revelation at the things that characterize this church. And they're things that were pleasing to God. Their works, their labor, their patience, the fact that they couldn't bear those who were evil. They had tested those who said they were apostles and are not and have found them liars. They had persevered and had patience. They had labored for Jesus' namesake and had not become weary. These people had a lot of religion, didn't they? They were very active. They were making sacrifices. But they had drifted away. And so it can be for us. Just because we're religious doesn't mean we're okay. We must make sure that we're adhering to the standard. The absolute standard. And that standard is not relative and that standard is not our family. It's not our friends. It's not our brethren. It's not people that we respect. The standard is God's Word. And we need to make sure that we're complying to that standard. Remember where, you have from, where you've fallen from. The next thing he tells them is that they needed to repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent. When you're not living to that standard, there's a solution. You need to repent. Remembering alone. That remembering that, well, there's the standard and I'm not living to it is not enough. That must lead to 
action. It must have a response. And that response has to be more than just an apology. Jesus says that we need to repent. It's more than just an apology. It's more than just a, oh, my bad. I messed up. I'm sorry. It's got to be more than that. It has to be even more than forgive me. We're talking about more than that. It has to be more than just sorrow for what we've done. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, or verse 9 beginning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Paul helps us understand more about what repentance is. And it's not just a more, it's not just a, oh, I messed up, or oh, I wish I hadn't done that, or more than just, I'm sorry. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's a standard. And when I'm living in a way that's not in compliance with that standard, I ought to be sorry. But it's more than just, oh, I'm sorry. I've got to do something different. There must be repentance. And repentance is not just, I'm sorry that I got caught. I want to try and save my reputation, so I'll say I'm sorry. And so I'll apologize. Repentance is more than that. And repentance, kids, is not just, well, I'll say I'm sorry so I don't get in so much trouble. And grown-ups, repentance is not, I'll say I'm sorry so I don't get in so much trouble. Repentance is more than that. Repentance is closely connected to the idea of conversion in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Acts 3, 19. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance means that we turn from our sins and we turn towards God. I'm not living in the way that I should according to that standard. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to turn back towards that standard. I'm going to turn. I'm going to change the way that I live. I was doing this and it is wrong. I'm changing. I'm not going to do that anymore. This repentance means that we're going to leave sin behind with the intention to never do it again. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, beginning. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Here's repentance. Colossians 3, verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of things, these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. There's repentance, isn't it? I used to do those things. I used to be involved in those sins, but I'm putting those sins to death. Not that, oh, I did that today, I'm sorry, but I'll do it again tomorrow. Oh, I wish I hadn't been caught doing this or doing that. My bad, I messed up. No, repentance means I'm putting those things to death. I'm crucifying those things. I'm laying them aside. I'm not doing those things anymore. Now, I may stumble and fall, but my intention is to never do those things again. When I repent, I say I'm done. I don't want any more of that. 
I don't just keep it around in my back pocket and I'll go to it on Friday or I might go to it tomorrow. No, I'm putting those things to death. That's repentance. And repentance needs to be directed by the understanding that when we sin, we're not sinning against mom or dad, against uh, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. No, we're sinning against God. That's what David says in Psalm 51, verse 4. Notice the repentance that's found here. Or the attitude that leads to repentance in the Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. When we realize that when we sin, we're sinning against God, it ought to motivate us to do better, to change, to repent. Jesus tells the church at Ephesus, remember that standard from which you've fallen. Repent. And finally this morning, He tells them that they needed to return. He says, do the first works. Get back to that standard. When you turn, turn back to God and get back to where you were. We were right with God. And we want to be back in that state of being right with God. And that requires us to obey Him. Do the first works. In other words, get back to living the way you were living when you were living like you should. This shows us that being right with God is more than just believing in Him, isn't it? It's more than just a mental exercise. It requires a response. It requires us obeying Him. Doing those first works. It wasn't a complicated formula for the church at Ephesus. And it's not a complicated formula for us. We need to be committed to living our lives every day with the same fervor and zeal that we'd had the first day that we were Christians. Do the first works. Live like you lived when you were on fire for the Lord. That's the message for Ephesus. And that's the message for us today. The Hebrew writer encourages the Christians then to do this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Hebrews 10, verse 32 but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you, need, you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but to those who believe to the saving of the soul. They were told they needed to get back to those former days. And when we drifted off, we need to remember where we were we need to repent and we need to return. Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus is His message to us when we wander. And it is the same experience that the prodigal son had. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 15? Turn with me to Luke 15. And let's start reading at verse 11 in this well-known story of the prodigal son. The parable that Jesus gives here for the one who wanders away and comes back. And he goes through the same 
events, and he does this, has the same process that Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus. Beginning of verse 11 of Luke 15. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a portion of goods that falls me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? He remembered, didn't he? He remembered from where he had fallen. He remembered what it was like back at dad's house. He said, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He repented, didn't he? He remembered what it was like with his father and he repented Notice what it says. He arose and came to his father. He returned. He remembered. He repented. And he returned. And that is the same process that we need to go through when we drift, when we wander away. But notice the result. As he returns, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The father was waiting on that prodigal son to remember, repent, and return. And when we wander away from the Father, He's waiting on us with open arms to remember, repent, and return. It is vitally important. It is so important that we live to that standard. Because notice what Jesus says. If we don't, He told the church at Ephesus, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. There will be eternal consequences if we do not live to that standard that God has put for us? Are you living like you should? Are you living to that standard every day of your life? If you're not, we would encourage you to repent. Remember, repent and return. And if we can help with that, will you let us know while we stand and sing?